Section 6 of That Affair at Elizabeth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. That Affair at Elizabeth by Burton Egbert Stevenson. Chapter 9. The Old Sorrow. To Mrs. Lawrence, I repeated. Here was a coincidence, indeed. Could it be, I asked myself again, that this thing had been deliberately arranged? But I dismissed the thought as ridiculous. I will tell you the story so far I know it, said the clergyman. It is no breach of trust to do so, for it was public property at the time, though long since forgotten. I should not recall it now, but for the fact that it may shed some light upon today's occurrence. Perhaps it will, I agreed. Mrs. Lawrence, began my companion, was born at Scotch Plains about fifty years ago. Her father's name was Hiram Jarvis. He had made a comfortable fortune in the dry-goods business in New York, and had built himself a country house at Scotch Plains, going into New York every morning and returning every evening. Scotch Plains is a very small place, a mere village, but has a number of handsome country homes. It is not on the railroad, but lies about a mile back of Fanwood, which is its station. It has a little Presbyterian church, and when I graduated in sixty-five from Princeton Seminary, I received a call to it, which I accepted. Mr. Jarvis and his daughter were members of my congregation, the former, indeed, being the president of the board of trustees. I nodded my interest. Plainly I had done well in coming to Dr. Schuller. Jarvis was a tall, straight, austere Scotchman of the old school, continued the clergyman, with a belief in predestination and eternal punishment, which was, well, rather fanatical, even for those days. His daughter was a beautiful girl of seventeen or eighteen. Her mother had died some years before, and she was left solely in her father's care, without brothers or sisters. There was an aunt in New York City, a younger sister of her father, and married to a banker named Hemingway, but she seemingly took little interest in the girl. Her character, or so I judged the few times I saw her, was much like her brother's, tempered, perhaps, with a little more worldliness. I think she's still living. At least I've never heard of her death. She has been a widow for many years. So the girl grew up in the lonely house, with only her father to care for. I sometimes thought his treatment of her a little severe. He would rarely permit her to take part in even the most innocent merry-making, and I often found myself pitying her. But I concluded it was none of my business a conclusion which was cowardly, perhaps, but that was my first charge, and Jarvis was quite a terrifying man. I could well believe it, and said so. There was another member of my congregation, went on Dr. Schuller, concerning whom I had doubts of quite an opposite character. That was young Boyd Endicott. The Endicott place lay just beyond the Jarvis house, which it quite overshadowed, for the Endicotts were very wealthy. The father did not belong to my church, nor indeed to any church, and I seldom met him, he had been associated with Jim Fisk in some operations which seemed to me of questionable honesty, though Fisk's reputation may have prejudiced me unduly. But his wife was a lovely Christian woman, and devoted to her children. "'Her children,' I repeated. The story interested me so intensely that I wanted every detail. There were two, a girl of seventeen or eighteen named Ruth, and Boyd, who was about nineteen, and a junior at Princeton. I had heard something of his college escapades when I was at the seminary, but the first time I saw him was when he came home for the holidays. He was a handsome boy, dark, with a face that showed his breeding, but he was the wildest, most untamable I ever knew. When he came walking into church with his mother, it used to amuse me to see how Mr. Jarvis would glare at him. He considered him a firebrand of hell, and didn't scruple to say so. And young Endicott would stare back, at Jarvis, as I thought, but I saw my mistake afterwards. There was more or less trouble of a personal kind between the two. Endicott's dog killed some of the Jarvis chickens, and Jarvis shot the dog. Endicott rode over the Jarvis land, and Jarvis swore out a warrant against him for trespass, 
mere persecution, the villagers thought it, and there were other differences of a similar nature, which were ended only when the boy went back to school. Of course, Mr. Lester, I don't know all the steps in the affair, but on Christmas Eve, just a year later, there came a great knocking at my door, and when I opened it, there on the step stood Jarvis, with such a face as I had never seen on a man before. He stamped in and flung a sheet of paper down on the table. "'Read that,' he said, in a stifled voice. "'Read that, man! Oh, that I should have bred a harlot!' I was too astonished to reply, but I picked up the paper and read it. It was a note from his daughter. I forget the exact words, but she told him that she had secretly married Boyd Endicott, knowing that she could never win his consent, and prayed for his forgiveness. They were going away, she said. She would not see him again for a long time, and hoped he would think kindly of her. It was a touching note, Mr. Lester. The good man's voice choked, and he paused to regain control of it. As for me, I thought of that other note I had read a few hours since. "'He was like a man crazed,' continued Dr. Schuller at last. "'He wouldn't listen to reason. He demanded only that I accompany him, while he sought his daughter out and made sure that she and young Endicott were really married. He swore that he would follow them to the ends of the earth, that he might see them wedded with his own eyes. A heavy storm was raging, but I could not deny him.' He had his buggy at the door, and we drove away to the Fanwood station. There the agent told us that Miss Jarvis had taken the afternoon train for New York. There was no other train for an hour, so we waited. Jarvis tramped up and down the station like a wild thing. And then just before the train was due, there came a telegram for him. It was from his sister, and stated that Mary had reached her home unattended, and was very ill. That settled the matter, so far as I was concerned. I drove back home again, and Jarvis went on to New York. Unfortunately, in the first rage of his discovery of his daughter's flight, he had given the servants some hint of the affair, and it leaked out, but was gradually forgotten. Mary Jarvis, after a long illness, went with her father for a visit to Scotland, and did not return to her home at Scotch Plains for nearly three years. She was greatly changed, older and with an air of sadness which never quite left her. Her father was changed, too. He had left his daughter at his old home in Scotland and hurried back. Why, I didn't guess till afterwards. He became more crabbed and irritable than ever. He seemed to be withering away, and his face grew to haunt me. It was so harried and anxious. I suspected that he had become involved in business troubles of some sort, for the country was on the verge of a panic, and once I tried to approach the subject to offer him any help I could, but he stopped me with such ferocity that I never tried again. Then suddenly came the news that Endicott had been caught with Fisk in the ruin of Black Friday. But while Fisk saved himself by repudiating his obligations, Endicott had been bound in such a way that he could not repudiate, and the man who had bound him was Hiram Jarvis. The speaker paused and leaned back for a moment in his chair, his face very stern. That was his revenge, he added, but I doubt if he foresaw how bitter it was to be, for Endicott shot himself, the place was sold, and the widow and her daughter came to live here in Elizabeth, where they had relatives. But the boy, I asked, where was he? He was killed two days after that Christmas Eve in a railroad wreck somewhere in the West. I have forgotten exactly where. His body was brought home to Scotch Plains and buried there. "'In the West?' I repeated. "'What was he doing in the West?' "'I don't know,' answered Dr. Schuller. "'I've never been able to understand it.' "'Were he and Miss Jarvis already married, or did they expect to be married afterwards?' "'Well,' said Dr. Schuller slowly, "'I inferred from the note that they were already married.' but I may have been mistaken in thinking so. I know that her father did not believe it. And you say that you've never been able to understand why, after all, they did not go away together, why Miss Jarvis went to New York and Endicott to the West. Dr. Schuller hesitated. Of course, he said after a moment, 
The most obvious explanation is that Endicott deserted her. And yet that would have been so unlike him, for he was not a vicious or selfish fellow, Mr. Lester, but generous, honourable, warm-hearted, despite his other faults, which were merely, I think, faults of youth. I've never believed that he deserted her. Perhaps at the last moment her courage failed, or perhaps there was a mistake of some sort, a misunderstanding which kept them apart. I pondered it for a moment, then put it aside. That was not the mystery I had set myself to solve. "'Well, Miss Jarvis evidently got over it,' I remarked, since she afterwards became Mrs. Lawrence. "'That is one way of looking at it,' he assented. "'But I've always thought that she was so far from getting over it that she never greatly cared what became of her afterwards.' "'Was it so bad as that?' "'It was as bad as it could possibly be. She did not return from Scotland for two years and more. It was about a year later that she married Lawrence, who was a business associate of her father, and lived here at Elizabeth. I had been called to the pastorate of the church here, and performed the ceremony.' "'Lawrence must have been considerably older than she, then,' I suggested. "'Oh, much older. He was a widower, without children. I always fancied that her father had arranged the match.' He had completely broken down, and knew he hadn't long to live. And there was only one child of this marriage. Only one, Marcia. How long has Mrs. Lawrence been a widow? Oh, for twenty years and more. She has lived here ever since. She has kept her home here, but she was abroad with her daughter for a long time, six or seven years at least. She was very fond of France, and so was Marcia, perhaps because she was born there. Born there? I repeated in some surprise. Yes, Mr. Lawrence had a very severe illness a few months after his marriage, I don't remember just what it was, and his doctor ordered him to the south of France for a long rest. His wife, of course, accompanied him, and Marcia was born there. I think that is all the story, Mr. Lester. Not quite all, I said. There is still a loose end. What became of Mrs. Endicott and her daughter? I think you said there was a daughter. Yes, Ruth, one of the loveliest girls I ever knew. They came here from Scotch Plains, as I've said, to make their home with Mrs. Endicott's sister, Mrs. Kingdon. He noticed my start of astonishment, and paused to look at me inquiringly. "'I beg your pardon,' I said, but the name struck me. Miss Lawrence's maid is named Kingdon. "'Yes, she's a niece of Mrs. Endicott. I've sometimes thought that it was because of this relationship that Mrs. Lawrence was so kind to her and to her sister.' "'Kind to them?' I repeated. "'In what way?' She gave them the cottage they live in, he explained, and has helped them in many other ways. The younger girl, Lucy, has a place in her household, where her duties, I fancy, are purely nominal. Her sister is supposed to take in sewing, but she really does very little. And they are Mrs. Endicott's nieces? Yes, her sister's children. And Boyd Endicott's cousins? Precisely. I felt a little glow of excitement, for here was a clue which might lead me out of the labyrinth. A loose end which, grasped firmly, might serve to unravel this tangled skein. "'Please go on,' I said. "'You have not yet told me what became of Mrs. Endicott and her daughter.' They made their home with Mrs. Kingdon, who was also a widow. Mrs. Kingdon had had much trouble. Her husband had died in an asylum for the insane, and they had a hard time to get along. But Mrs. Endicott died within a year. "'And Ruth?' I questioned. "'Ruth was a lovely girl. I shall never forget her. With the same dark, passionate beauty her brother had.' She possessed artistic talent which seemed to me of an unusual order, and she fancied that she could make a living by painting portraits. But she soon found that there was no market for her work here in Elizabeth, and that she needed years of training before she could hope to be successful elsewhere. So she was forced to give it up. And then, I prompted, for I saw by his hesitation that there was still something coming, and I was determined to have the whole story. I have already told you that Mr. Lawrence was a widower. 
His first wife was an invalid for a long time before her death, and when Ruth Endicott found she could not make a living with her brush, she accepted the position of companion to Mrs. Lawrence. I do not fancy the place was a pleasant one, but she kept it until Mrs. Lawrence's death. I leaned back in my chair and closed my eyes for an instant in the effort to straighten out this story, which was always turning back upon itself. What mystery was there, what mystery could there be, in the lives of the Kingdons and the Lawrences and the Endicotts, which had led up to the tragedy for which I was seeking an explanation? "'Well, and after that?' I asked, giving it up with a sigh of despair, and turning back to the clergyman. "'There isn't much more to tell. After Mrs. Lawrence's death, Ruth Endicott remained for a time as Lawrence's housekeeper.' but she had overworked herself. She seemed the very embodiment of health, and taxed her strength too heavily. She broke down very suddenly, and died, if I remember rightly, in Florida, where the elder Kingdon girl had taken her. She was the last of the Endicotts. The last of the Endicotts. The last of the Endicotts. I repeated the words over and over to myself. It may have been a presentiment, or merely an idle fancy, but something whispered in my ear. Some impalpable presence warned me that I had not yet heard the last of her. Ruth Endicott. There was a something in the name, a melody, the vision it evoked of a dark and brilliantly beautiful woman, which haunted me. And yet what possible connection could she have with the mystery which I had started to investigate? Thirty years dead! How could any fact connected with her drive Marcia Lawrence forth into hiding at the hour of her wedding? The utter absurdity of the thought was so apparent that I put it impatiently from me. "'You knew Mr. Lawrence, of course?' I asked at last. "'Oh, yes,' and he hitched uneasily in his chair, as though approaching an unwelcome topic. But I did not know him well. He was what the world calls a hard man, somewhat harsh and cold, though perfectly free from positive vice. He was thoroughly respected. "'He seems to have left a large property.' "'Yes, one of the largest in Elizabeth.' Mrs. Lawrence, of course, inherited her father's also. Both she and her daughter are members of your church. Two of the most faithful. They give largely to charity. They are really Christian women. We sat silent for a moment. To me, at least, the mystery seemed deeper than ever. "'Has it occurred to you, Mr. Lester,' asked the clergyman hesitatingly, "'that perhaps Miss Lawrence discovered something in Mr. Curtis's past?' "'Yes,' I interrupted. "'I put that before Curtis squarely.' and he assured me there was nothing she could discover. I'm sure he spoke the truth. Besides, in that case, why should Miss Lawrence flee? Why not merely dismiss him? Her flight seems to argue some guilt on her part. Yes, nodded my companion, yes. Some guilt, too, I added, of a very remarkable kind, which she was not conscious of until this morning, and which then appeared suddenly before her in such hideous shape that flight was her only resource. That seems inconceivable, doesn't it? Dr. Schuller dropped his head back against his chair with a little sigh which bespoke utter fatigue. "'Yes,' he said, "'inconceivable. The whole thing is inconceivable. It's a kind of horrible nightmare. I can't make anything of it. My brain is in a whirl.' "'I'm taxing your patience too long,' I protested, rising instantly. "'You need rest. Only let me thank you for your kindness.' He held out his hand with a smile. "'I seem only to have made dark places darker,' he said. If you succeed in untangling the snarl, I should like to hear about it. You shall, I promised, and took myself back to the hotel. I felt that there was nothing more to be done that night, and so mounted to my room. As I started to undress, I remembered suddenly the envelope Curtis had sent me. I got it out and opened it, and my heart leapt with a sudden suffocating sympathy as I looked at the photograph within. A Madonna, indeed! Mr. Royce had chosen the right word, 
had paid a fitting tribute not only to her beauty, but to the spotless soul behind it. For the face was essentially girlish, virginal. There was no shameful secret back of that clear, direct gaze. It was sweet, frank, winning. A strong face, too, showing intellect and training. No ordinary woman, I told myself. Not one, certainly, to be swayed by momentary passion, to yield to an unreasoning impulse. No, nor one to fall victim to an adventurer, for this was a woman with ideals, and high ones, a woman whose clear eyes could detect any specious imposture at a glance, a fitting mate for Burkhurtis, the appointed mate, and yet not his, not his, snatched from him by a desperate act, desperate. If I, a man hardened by contact with the world, could feel that, how much more poignantly must she have felt it, with what horror must she have shrunk from it, with what agony yielded. As I gazed at her, it seemed to me that there was something familiar in the face, in the set of the eyes, the shape of the forehead, something familiar in the expression, in the poise of the head, which puzzled and eluded me. A resemblance to her mother, I decided at last, and so put the photograph away and went to bed. But sleep did not come easily. Ever before my eyes there danced a vision of that vine-embowered cottage opening from the Lawrence grounds. There, I felt, lay the key to the mystery. It was to it I must turn for the clue which would lead me out of this labyrinth. There was some secret about these Kingdon sisters which defied and worried me. Dr. Schuller's explanation of their connection with Mrs. Lawrence did not in the least satisfy me. That she should keep them near her, shower them with gifts, merely because of an old fondness for a cousin of theirs, seemed to me exceedingly improbable. There must be some other reason, some more compelling one than that. It was much more likely, I told myself, remembering the passionate fierceness of the younger sister, that the gifts were intended to placate, not to reward, that they were the outgrowth of fear, not of affection. Fear of what? I could not even guess. Fear of the exposure of some secret, perhaps, and the thought stung me to a sudden attention. Had the gifts been in vain? Had the secret been exposed? Was it they who had whispered in Marcia Lawrence's ear the story which had broken the marriage, caused her flight, ruined her future? Was that their revenge for some old injury? Had they waited till the last moment to make it more complete, more crushing? But if they indeed had so avenged themselves, would she have fled to them for refuge? Would she not rather have fled from them, with loathing? I felt that I was entangling myself in a web of my own weaving. I put the problem from me, but it pursued me even past sleep's portals. I dreamed that I was staring over the hedge at the Kingdon Cottage, at a lighted window. Three women were in the room, as I could see from the shadows thrown upon the blind. They were walking up and down, seemingly in great excitement. I fancied that I could hear the sound of voices, but I could distinguish no words. Then, suddenly, two of the women sprang upon the third. She struggled desperately, but their hands were at her throat, choking her life away. She turned toward me, the curtain seemed to lift, and I beheld the agonized face of Marcia Lawrence. I tried to leap the hedge, but could not stir. Some power beyond me seemed to hold me fast. Some mighty weight bound me to the spot. A moment longer the struggle lasted, while I stood staring. I felt her eyes on mine. I knew that she had seen me. She held out an imploring hand. Then, when I made no sign in answer, despair swept across her face. She seemed to realize her helplessness, and collapsed into the arms of her assailants, with a scream so shrill, so terrible, that it startled me awake. End of chapter 9 Chapter 10 The Mysterious Light it was some moments before I could think clearly, so real and vivid had that vision been. I threw out my arms to assure myself that I was still in bed. 
I could scarcely believe that I was not really shivering behind the hedge, staring across at that lighted window and the dreadful drama it revealed. I was bathed in perspiration, and yet felt chilled to the very marrow. Indeed, my teeth were chattering as I groped my way to the light, turned it on, and looked at my watch. It was nearly one o'clock. The night was clear and pleasant, with a faint breeze stirring. There was no moon, but the stars were shining so brightly that one looked for it instinctively. I knew it was no use to return to bed until my nerves were quieter, and indeed that vision had banished all desire for sleep. So I filled my pipe, lighted it, drew up a chair, and sat down by the open window. The street below was deserted, and for an instant I found myself wondering that it was not thronged with people, roused by the scream which had awakened me. Then I remembered that there had been no scream, that I had simply dreamed it. But I had only to close my eyes to see again that lighted window and the shadows on the blind. It seemed even clearer to me than it had been in the dream. I could see every detail of the struggle, and I opened my eyes abruptly so that I might escape the end. There was something supernatural about it. I had never dreamed a dream like that before. A dream which, waking, I could rehearse at pleasure. Perhaps it was not wholly a vision. Perhaps it had some foundation in reality, some telepathic origin. I had read of such things, skeptically, but some of the phenomena of thought-transference had, I knew, been accepted, reluctantly enough, even by the scientific world. Was it not possible that Marcia Lawrence had been lured to the Kingdon Cottage, or taken there against her will? Who could say how that old injury done the Endicotts would flower and fruit? Who could say what hatred, what desire for vengeance, rankled in the hearts of the Kingdons? I remembered how the face of the maid had darkened with malice, how her eyes had blazed with infernal joy, as she stood there in the door of the library, thinking herself unseen. Her sister I knew nothing of, but if they resembled each other as sisters usually do, I could well believe them capable of any cruelty. Was it not possible that Marcia Lawrence was in their hands? Was it not possible that my dream possessed a basis of reality? I had been thinking of her all the evening. I had gone to sleep with the problem of her disappearance still on my mind. I had been studying her photograph. I was, in a word, in spiritual touch with her, responsive to any suggestion emanating from her. We were tuned to the same pitch. Such, I fancied, was the explanation of the phenomena which a telepathist would give. She had sent that cry into the night, and I, being en rapport with her, had heard it, had witnessed the tragedy which called it forth. Perhaps the struggle was not yet ended. Perhaps, even at this moment. I sprang to my feet, hurried into my clothes, caught up my hat, opened my door, and ran noiselessly down the stair. I would solve this problem to-night, if it could be solved. I had been wrong in turning away from the Kingdon Cottage the evening before. I should at least have made an effort to discover if Marcia Lawrence were really there but it had not occurred to me then that she could be in any danger. I had thought too much of what Curtis would wish me to do, too little of what the necessities of the case required. Well, I would not make that mistake a second time. As I looked back upon my frame of mind at that moment, and consider the impulse which sent me forth from my room at that hour of the night, I realize how overwrought I was. At a distance, in cold blood, it seems an absurd thing to have done, yet, under the same conditions, I should no doubt behave again in much the same way." and even admitting its absurdity, I am not prepared to say, in view of the event, that there was not back of it some instinct worth following. There are forces in nature not yet explained or recognized, and I am still inclined to think that it was one of these which drew me forth upon that midnight errand. In a very fever of impatience I hurried along the street, under the trees, meeting no one except a patrolman. I heard him stop as I passed him, and knew that he was looking back after me, but I kept on without pausing, and heard him finally start on again. In a minute more I reached the Lawrence place, and stopped in the shadow of a tree for a look around. 
The house loomed through the darkness, grim and gloomy, with no light showing anywhere. I leaped the fence, assuring that I was unseen, and pushed my way forward through the grove toward the path which led to the cottage. Beneath the trees the darkness was absolute, and I could go forward but slowly. Yet, starting from the library steps, I found the path without difficulty, and felt my way cautiously along it, until I came to the hedge which marked the limits of the Kingdon Place. I examined the house with care, but there was fronting me no lighted window upon which a tragedy could be pictured. Indeed, I saw no vestige of a light, and was about to conclude that my midnight pilgrimage had been in vain, when my eye was caught by a faint glimmer near the ground. At first I was not sure it was a light at all. Then I decided that it was a reflection of some sort, or perhaps a phosphorescent glow. But as I stared at it, with eyes contracted, it suddenly took shape in the darkness, and I saw that the light proceeded from a small ventilator set in the foundation of the house. Trembling with excitement, I softly opened the gate and entered the grounds. Here, with nothing between me and the stars, I suddenly found myself in what seemed a veritable blaze of light. I was seized with panic lest I be seen, and scurried into the shadow of the house, then dropped beside the ventilator and examined it. It was of the ordinary type, a plate of iron some six or eight inches square, perforated with holes perhaps half an inch in diameter, and set in the foundation about six inches from the ground. I applied an eye to one of the holes, and endeavoured to see what lay beyond. For a moment I saw absolutely nothing. Then I perceived in front of me a stretch of clay which ended abruptly at a distance of six or eight feet. A few inches above the level of my eye were the beams supporting the floor of the cottage. But it was only a glance I gave to these details, though I found them afterwards photographed upon my brain. It was the space beyond which fixed my attention, the space where the clay bank before me dropped abruptly to what was no doubt the cellar of the cottage. It was from this space that the light proceeded, but of what lay within it I could see almost nothing, only enough indeed to fire my curiosity, for from time to time a shadow moved between me and the light a shadow which showed that the cellar was not empty. The light, I judged, had been placed on a stool or table on the opposite side of the cellar. From the way it varied, now bright, now dim, I decided it was a candle, and that the motions of the person working near it caused the flame to flicker. These motions would continue for a time with considerable regularity. Then they would cease while the worker evidently stopped to rest, and then begin again. Who was this person, and what was this work which must be done at such an hour? In vain I sought an answer. I pressed my ear to the ventilator, but could hear nothing, nothing at least beyond the faintest of faint sounds, which gave me no clue to what was happening within. I peered through the little orifice moment after moment, until the shadows grew confused and blurred, and my eyes ached under the strain. I rose to rest myself. Then it suddenly occurred to me that the cellar must have a window. Skirting the house cautiously, I at last came to it but it was closed and curtained so effectually that only a faint glimmer here and there betrayed the light within. I listened, but could hear no sound. Fairly nonplussed, I returned to the hedge and sat down against it to consider. The shadow had given me no indication of whether the worker was man or woman, yet to the first question I had asked myself there could be only one answer. It was one or both of the kingdom women who were working in the cellar, both, I finally decided, since it was improbable that one could spend the night there without the knowledge of the other but what were they doing? To this I could find no answer. It was not merely an errand, because the light remained. Minute after minute I sat there, until I heard a clock somewhere strike two, and still the light remained. I crept forward to the ventilator and peered through again. The shadows were moving backward and forward, just as they had been an hour before. There was something uncanny about them, and I shivered as I watched. It seemed to me that they were made by some person alternately rising and stooping, 
but why should any one do that for hours at a time some subtle association of ideas brought before my eyes the vision which had confronted jean valjean on that night when he had peered through the grated window into the convent of little picpus the dim light the vast hall the motionless figure on the floor before the cross was some such explanation to be sought here were these long-continued risings and stoopings a series of genuflections before some shrine a penance perhaps imposed for some transgression the thought seemed absurd but i could think of no other explanation of these singular motions at last weary with long staring i went back to my seat beside the hedge and waited half an hour passed then i saw the glimmer at the ventilator suddenly disappear and a moment later a light gleamed through the kitchen window it went on toward the front of the house, and I saw the shadow of a woman's figure on the blind as it passed the window in front of me. Only one shadow. There was only one woman in the house, or at least only one awake and moving about. There had been only one in the cellar. My resolution was taken. I went straight forward to the door at the side of the house and knocked sharply. At the same instant the light vanished. I waited a moment, then knocked again more loudly. "'Who's there?' called a voice so harsh, so fierce, that it fairly startled me. "'Open the door,' I said. "'I wish to see Miss Lawrence.' "'This is not Miss Lawrence's home,' cried the voice. "'I know it, but she's here.' "'She's not here,' and the voice rose to a scream. "'Be off, or I'll fire through the door.' "'What sort of fury was this?' I asked myself, and I stepped to one side to be out of range of a possible bullet. "'Be off!' screamed the voice again. "'I'll fire, I swear it. The law will justify me.' There could be no question of that. It would be worse than folly to attempt to force an entrance with this fury opposing me, so I retreated again to the hedge and sat down to see what would happen. But nothing happened, and deciding at last that Miss Kingdon, or whoever it was had answered me, had gone to bed, I turned my steps toward the hotel just as the dawn was tinging the east with grey. And one thing I determined on. I would purchase a revolver. Only a fool ventures unarmed into the tiger's den. End of chapter 10 End of section 6